Jim, it's a delight to uh, look out and see your smiling face. Second row, third row again, and encouraging me. Usually you're over there, but I can handle it over here. It's all right. I guess that's what happens when you go learn Spanish. You move pews or something. All right? Getting ready for the Southern Hemisphere. Promise, it's good to see you back there as well. All the way. Yeah, I see you. I see you back there. I'm getting old, but the eyes still work at least that far. So, what a delight to be here this morning, and uh, I was talking with somebody before the service, we were talking about the Memorial Day picnic, which is going to be tomorrow, and just a great opportunity to get together and, and to enjoy one another's company, fellowship together in the Lord, and to remember and celebrate the lives of many, many people who have really made the ultimate sacrifice for us. They have given on the field of combat that we might enjoy the peace and prosperity, the blessings of living in this country. And so we have a great debt that we owe and we set aside that day. So somewhere in the midst of all of that, the, uh, the hamburgers, the hot dogs, the, the soft drinks and the fun, make a little time to just think about what has been bequeathed to you by people who have made the ultimate sacrifice. We live in a, in a country that was uh, founded upon uh, sort of the notion of individual freedom and rights. We're all about rights in this country. The second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, one of our founding documents, reads as follows. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Declaration of Independence, second paragraph. As the country progressed, winning a a war that I guess we should have never won other than the providence of God against the world's only superpower at that time, Great Britain, we became an independent nation. But we were not a a united people at that point. It was still 13 independent states. And so over the next decade or so, there came the realization these states needed to come together under some kind of federal constitution. So a constitutional convention was convened, and, and a lot of work and effort and negotiation went on between the states, the larger and the smaller states, all wanting their fair and proper rights to be protected. And they came up with what we know as our Constitution. Continues to serve us well even to this day. But in order to get all 13 states to agree to sign and to ratify this Constitution, they had to add to it Uh, another document that that enumerated ten additional rights. It's called the Bill of Rights. 
that was attached to that constitution and, and was part of the horse trading, as you, as you can say it that way, that went on in order to get it to be ratified by all 13 independent states. Since that time, the Constitution has been amended 17 more times. In the process, uh, additional rights have been added, and uh, I am very thankful, most grateful for the rights that have been added as part of the amendment process. 27 amendments now to the United States Constitution. Two generations after the founding of this nation, we fought a bloody civil war. And fundamentally, at the heart of that civil war was the issue of states' rights versus the rights of the federal government. How do they intersect one another, and where are the boundaries? You know, in a fallen world, a government that is concerned with the rights of its citizens is an absolute blessing from God. We to be very thankful for it. But over time, this sort of national passion with regard to rights has led to an ever-expanding list of personal rights. And the problem becomes that as the list of people's rights expand, inevitably what follows with it is conflict. Because rights are bound to collide. I've got my rights, you've got your rights. And when they rub one another, the friction creates conflict. And we see that very much today, don't we? A lot of conflict going on in our world about our rights and the rights of others. You know, faced with what we perceive is an infringement upon our rights, we frequently are tempted to fight and, and retaliate against those who we perceive as infringing upon our rights. Those that are doing us wrong, as they would say in the vernacular. This, to a large degree, is the bitter fruit of sin and selfishness. So we have a quandary. Fundamental rights, the greatest place of national freedom that the history of the world has ever witnessed, and yet an ever-increasing assertion of individual rights that brings about conflict in our society. It's a kind of a unique place to be. And then we have what the Bible has to say about all of this. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. Because as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible has a really radical message for us. As I've been thinking and praying and studying in preparation for preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, this is one passage this morning that we're going to be looking at that, wow, it really confronts us, really confronts us. Kind of a radical message for us. Let me begin with this sort of very bold assertion. When we came to Christ, we surrendered all of our rights and in their place picked up a whole bunch of responsibilities. Let me read that again for you. When we came to Christ, 
We surrendered all of our rights and in their place picked up a whole bunch of responsibilities. Now that's downright un-American. It's downright un-American to think like that. Jesus has been repeatedly illustrating this foundational biblical principle in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been looking at. And he has done it. He's illustrated this reality in really a number of ways as we've looked at the issues of murder, adultery, divorce, and last week, truth-telling. This morning he's going to add to his his teaching by a, a discussion of personal rights. He's going to talk to us about personal rights. You're not there already. Open up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 38 to 42 this morning. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. I've entitled the message this morning, Giving Up Your Rights. Giving Up Your Rights. Beloved, true righteousness changes how we interact with our fallen world. It transforms us. It sets us apart. It sanctifies us. It calls us out from the world in which we live. This morning, Jesus is going to challenge us to give up some of the rights that we hold most dear as an expression of what it means to follow Him as Savior and Lord. He's going to get in our face this morning. He's going to challenge our assumptions. He's going to challenge what it means to be an American. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. Now, Jesus' teaching this morning in verses 38 and 42, it takes the form of of a general command, and then it's followed by four specific and far reaching illustrations detailing the extent to which we must deny the world and live for the next. Deny this world, live for the next. You ready? Let's have at it. Verse 38, the general command. A personal, the command is this, the personal retaliation is prohibited. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, you'll remember that to understand this sermon properly, at this point we we have to keep it in mind that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those that are following him, and through them to those that are on the outer edges of the crowd, the multitudes, who are curious and want to know what it means to follow him, and to a third group beyond that, which are those uh, represented by the Pharisees that are in open hostility to him. And Jesus will continually point to them and to the way that they have been interpreting the Mosaic law in the form of an external righteousness, a works-oriented righteousness, and he'll say, you have heard it said, you have been taught, but I say to you, and he will give them a proper understanding of the Mosaic law. What's the heart of the law? 
And so it continues here. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. With this citation, Jesus takes his audience back to Moses, back into the Mosaic law, into what is called lex talionis. Lex talionis, Latin phrase, it just means the law of retaliation. The law of retaliation. This is an ancient legal code, an ancient rule, and it was designed to keep the courts from being unjustly lenient with people or unduly harsh. It was an ancient legal principle. It, was, it occurred in Israel, but not in Israel alone. It was also held in a number of other ancient societies contemporary with Israel. And it's designed to prevent unjust leniency or an undue harshness in the application of punishment, the punishment phase of the law. If you like, you could call it the law of proportionality. The law of proportionality. As I said, the other ancient cultures had similar laws, but there was one very radical difference between the, the law of lex talionis as it was seen in the, in the fertile crescent of the second millennium and the way it was given by God to Israel. The difference was this. In the other pagan cultures, lex talionis applied based on social strata. In Israel, it applied equally regardless of one's social strata. What do I mean by that? Simply this. In the other ancient pagan nations, if you were to, to bring about injury or commit a crime against someone of a higher class than you, then the pro- law of proportionality did not apply. The, the punishment could be far more severe because you were of a lower class. Or if someone of an upper class were to, to create a, uh, commit a crime against you calling for punishment, there could be a leniency because you were not in the same social standing. So it applied across horizontally social standings. Yet God gave it to Israel and said it applies vertically across all social standings. That's what makes it radical. That's what makes it stand out. The law of proportionality. Now three times we find it in the Old Testament where God specifically instructs the people to inflict upon the perpetrator of a crime a punishment that is proportional to the offense. There is to be a punishment that is proportional to the offense of the crime. It's also highly significant to note that each of these three times it occurs in the Old Testament, it occurs in the context of a judicial setting. It is a judicial statement. Even if the sentence is carried out by an individual, it is still under the auspices and oversight of a judicial court, a a judge. Now, let me show that to you. So I'm going to turn you back into the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 21. I'm going to take the time to establish this because I think it's key to understanding what Jesus has to say. We understand that lex talionis, the law of proportionality, is a judicial requirement in the law of Moses. So I want to turn you to Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 22. And the reason I want to take the time to do this is because a number of commentators 
apparently overlook this important contextual reality, and they, they get themselves all off track in trying to understand what Jesus is doing. And they end up saying that basically Jesus is contradicting the law of Moses. He's changing the law of Moses. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is not what Jesus is doing. So, Exodus chapter 21, and beginning in verse 22. Moses writes, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, and you can understand that is to be injury to the child, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. By the way, that's a great verse for understanding how early Jewish society understood life in the womb. But if there is further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now that's a rather laborious way of spelling out proportionality, isn't it? It's to make it absolutely clear that we understand what is being said here. All right, let's keep moving. Just pick up the others. Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 17. Leviticus 24, and beginning in verse 17. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as for the native, for I am the Lord your God. You see the fact that it's applied across all social strata, including those who are not even citizens of the nation. The law of proportionality. Now, you'll notice I said these are all occur in a, in a context of a judicial setting, and let me just make sure you understand that. Yeah, the context leading into this is of a, of a man, verse 11, the son of an Israelite woman, blasphemed the name and cursed. And they brought him before Moses and the judges to try to decide what should be done with him. And they put him in custody, verse 12, to hear what God would say. Verse 14, bring the one who is cursed outside the camp. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and then let all the congregation stone him. Down to verse 23, then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So there's still a judicial execution going on here. It is capital punishment. It is inflicted by the multitudes, but it is inflicted not indiscriminately. This is not in a rage in which they just haul someone out and stone him. It is a, it is a capital offense that has been uh, brought upon him by judicial action. We go one more to the right to uh, Deuteronomy 19, and that will cover them all. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. 
Moses writes here, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the man who have the dispute, both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. If someone perjures themselves in an attempt to bring about penalty or, or punishment upon uh, their enemy, those with whom they're having a dispute, and the judges investigate and find it out, then the punishment that they intended for their victim is wrought upon them. The law of lex talionis. Now the reasons for this judicial code, this punishment system, are really twofold. They're twofold. Number one, it discourages crime. That's a way of discouraging crime. And it says it right there in um, verse 20. The rest shall hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. So it has a way of discouraging crime. Paul says, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, talking about an elder who sins, and he says that he is to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the others will hear and to be afraid. Same basic idea. It discourages crime. That's the first reason. The second reason is that lex talionis tends to prevent revenge that that acts as, a, as an accelerant or to hostilities. That is, that it, it causes the hostilities to swell and grow. And we get into various kinds of grudges and, and um, honor murders and things like that. We can see that, for example, in Genesis chapter 4. Don't turn there, but Genesis 4, verses 23 and 24, where we have Lamech. You remember him? He was one of the descendants of Cain and He writes, uh, he created a little rap song, and uh, in it he says, I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Genesis 4, verse 23. So you see how personal retaliation can escalate and cause vendettas, retaliations. It accelerates the crime rate. So God gave to His ancient people the law of proportionality, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Under the Mosaic law, personal revenge was prohibited. That's important to understand. It was prohibited. I'll read some verses for you. I think we have them on the screen. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. Deuteronomy 32.35. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will save you. Proverbs 24 and verse 
29. Do not say, Thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Don't say that. Obviously, if you can't say it, you're not supposed to do it either. So personal retaliation, personal vengeance is specifically excluded, prohibited by the Mosaic law. But by the time of the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees had to a large degree lost sight of this fact. They had lost sight of the reality that the, that the statements about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth were given in a judicial context. And instead, they began to see it and teach it as a, as a means of personal retribution. What was considered judicial what was considered the norms for society, had now become something that was personalized. Meaning that if someone had offended you, someone had wronged you, then you could take out your vengeance upon them as long as you only took a tooth for a tooth or an eye for an eye. What was judicial became personal. So in response to this misinterpretation, go back to Matthew chapter 5. In response to this prevailing cultural misinterpretation, Jesus makes what I think is one of the most radical and difficult statements that is found anywhere in the New Testament. He prohibits personal retaliation. He prohibits personal retaliation. Verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Stop right there. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. You have heard that it's said, get your revenge. Just be fair about it. But I'm telling you, do not. Do not. Now, historically, this statement, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, has been removed from its context by many. When you lift it out of its context and, and you, the context of personal retribution and you apply it in a, in a societal or governmental way, then it produces this mistaken idea that Christians must stand back and allow evil and evil people to run roughshod. That we're not supposed to oppose evil. That is not what Jesus is saying. It is not, let me repeat it, it is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, let me remind you, that He came to fulfill the Old Testament Scriptures and not to overturn them, right? Verses 17 to 19, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. By the way, heaven and earth don't pass away until the end of the millennial kingdom. So until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And whoever annuls one of the least of these shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I did not come to overturn the Old Testament. And the Old Testament Scriptures are very, very clear about teaching respect for and obedience to human government and its role in physically suppressing evil. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, key Old Testament text in which capital punishment is instituted. 
Paul picks it up in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 4, and there reaffirms this reality. Capital punishment. If a government is is given the authority and the responsibility by God to execute evildoers, then from the law of greater to lesser, they can do any other thing underneath it in the suppression of crime. So it is not about letting criminals run rampant. That is not what Jesus is saying. This is not a teaching on pacifism, although many have lifted it from its context and tried to make it say that. It is about denying your personal rights. Now, as Christians, we we have certain God-given rights. We're people, we're Christians, and we have rights. But we are commanded to give them up in this world. We're commanded to give them up. By the way, you can't give up something that you don't have. You grant me that? You can't be called to give up something you don't have. And so what we're told to give up are not unlawful, but lawful rights. That's what makes this radical. These are things that that really we do have. They are ours. And yet Jesus is saying to follow me is to voluntarily surrender them. Surrender them. Do not resist an evil person. He will now begin to illustrate what he means. He gives us four illustrations. I have them here for you. The end of verse 39, first illustration, deny your dignity. Deny your dignity. The first illustration of what it means to not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, the world is predominantly right-handed. For a right-handed person to strike another individual on their right cheek, it can only be accomplished in one way, and that's with the back of the hand. Okay, if you want to take a moment and just kind of work the mechanics through, turn to the person opposite you, okay? Do not strike them, but just, yeah, that's right, you can look at her, and... Just envision what would be required to strike them as a right-handed person on the right cheek. It's a backhand blow. It's a backhand. This is universally acknowledged to be insulting. The back of the hand across the face is an insult. It's a sign of an insult. And this culture into which Jesus writes is a, is a culture that is built on honor and shame. And so this kind of an insult would be nearly impossible to bear. This is to disrespect somebody at the greatest level. In fact, in Jesus' day, if you insulted somebody with a slap, it was punishable by a fine. If it were a backhanded slap, they doubled the fine. If you backhand somebody in Jesus' day, the fine was twice as steep. It was so humiliating, so insulting, so demeaning to that person. So what does Jesus say? He says that a kingdom citizen does not retaliate when insulted, even physically. 
even physically. But wait, there's more. Not only are we not to retaliate, but a kingdom citizen does what? Look at the rest of the verse. He turns his head in order to willingly receive a second blow. A second blow. He takes the first, and he sets himself up for the second. Now you're thinking about that, and I'm sure that your immediate response is probably not unlike the immediate response of the hearers in the first century. That's crazy. You've got to be kidding me. I'm supposed to not only just take it, but I'm to set myself up to allow them to do it to me a second time? Since Jesus didn't elaborate, neither will I. Text says what it says. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, look at it. Turn the other to him also. Turn the other. Now, I will note for you that that Jesus did protest verbally when he was unjustly struck at his trial in violation of the law. John 18, verses 22 and 23 record that. He did not strike back. I find it interesting, though, that Peter, I think picking up on this basic idea, he writes this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. He's talking about Jesus. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And by the way, just before that, Peter says, Jesus has left us an example to follow. An example to follow. Beloved, how difficult is this? I think this has got to be right up there with some of the most difficult things that we have been required to do as a follower of Christ. To deny our own dignity. Listen, I, I bet you're like me in many ways. When I get slighted or, or insulted or, or offended, what I what I've that I have to struggle against is that in my private moments I, I kind of relive the incident. It goes through my mind once, twice, three times, and on, right? I kind of relive it. I turn it over. I examine all the details. I, I try to sort it out. What were their motives in what were their intents when they said that? Why, why did they say that to me? Why did they do that to me? And since last week I, Jesus said we have to be completely truthful, right? I'll be completely truthful with you. Sometimes thoughts of revenge go through my mind. I don't think I'm different than anybody else. Give them the other side of your face, he says. How far removed we can get, can't we, 
from a very straightforward command. Deny your dignity. Second illustration. Surrender your security, verse 40. Surrender your security. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. This second illustration deals with the surrendering of our legal rights. Surrendering of our legal rights by giving to a person who is suing us a claim on our assets that they are forbidden by law to have. We're being sued. doesn't address in the context whether we're being lawfully or unlawfully sued. It doesn't say. What it says is you're being sued... And they want to take your shirt, and you're to let them have your coat. Now, a normal Jewish man would be dressed like this. He would have, first, a loincloth. Over the loincloth, he would wear a, a tunic. That's called a shirt. It's translated the word shirt here. On top of the tunic, he would have a cloak, called here a coat. So that would be his normal dress, loincloth, shirt, or tunic, and a cloak or a coat. This outer garment, this cloak, this coat, could double as a sleeping blanket, and for the poor it often did. And because that was so, it was protected as an unalienable right among the people of Israel that you could not seize a man's coat. Regardless of how much money he owed you, you could not take his coat to satisfy the debt. It was protected. It was off limits. You could have anything else. You could not have his coat. Doesn't matter how much he owed you. You can't have his coat. See, that's what makes this statement incredibly radical. Jesus is saying is what your, what your opponent would not even dare to claim in a lawsuit, you're to voluntarily surrender. or they have no claim on, or they cannot get a claim on, you're to surrender. Can't help but think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. He's talking about lawsuits there among believers. He says in verse 7, why not rather be wronged, why not rather be defrauded than to go to suit against your brother? Listen, as long as we see our security tied up in this world, we will never understand, nor will we attempt to live like this. And say it again, as long as we see our security as tied up in the things of this world, we will never understand a radical kind of statement that says, surrender to your opponent at law that which he could not take from you. We can only understand it we recognize that our life is not all about the here and now. Surrender your security. Third, limit your liberty. Verse 41, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Limit your liberty. 
This is an illustration that speaks about our rights in the area of personal liberty. Personal liberty. Roman law allowed a soldier to, to requisition or to, or to press into, a service, into the service of Rome either man or beast. That's what the soldiers could do. You're walking down the street. Roman soldiers are coming by. They can stop you. They can call you out of the crowd. They can interrupt your business wherever you're going, whatever you're doing. They tell you to stop it and put on their pack and carry it for them. Roman law. You see it illustrated in the New Testament in Matthew 27 and verse 32. Jesus, so weakened by loss of blood, unable to carry the cross member of his own execution cross, the Roman soldiers pressed into service Simon of Cyrene, remember, and made him carry Jesus' cross. They didn't ask him, would you like to carry this, sir? Okay? They said, you, pick it up and carry it. But, but, sir, I've got an appointment with a pick it up and carry it. Now, you can imagine how well that sat with the people, right? Imagine if the police department today were to do that. This is the hated Roman government and its oppressive soldiers. It's probably, this has got to be the most odious imposition possible upon a people who are fiercely nationalistic. To be compelled to drop whatever you're doing, pick up your enemy's luggage, his burden, and carry it for him. Aid him in doing what you hate that he's doing. Now, because it was so unpopular, the Rome limited how far a soldier could force a civilian to carry their, their pack. They limited it to what was called a mile. It's a Roman mile. It's about 1,000 paces. It's, oh, it's about four or 500 feet short of a, of a U.S. mile. Still a considerable distance. They did that so there wouldn't be an insurrection. Look at verse 41 again. Jesus is faced with this intolerable imposition. His followers are to go above and beyond what is required for them and in the process voluntarily surrender their personal liberty. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Go with him too. You start to feel the weight of this, can't you? Deny your dignity. Surrender your security. Limit your liberty. Number four, relinquish your property. You know, it's almost like Jesus was writing to us. Relinquish your property, verse 42. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Now, in ancient Israelite society, they had to deal with the poor. And Moses, in the law, prescribed a way to deal with the poor. And here's how it worked. It was a system not of handouts, but of work. 
A system not of handouts, but of work. All able-bodied people were to work. You know, they would leave the corners of their fields for the people to glean. They would leave some fruit on the vine for the people to come behind the harvesters and to pick and so that they would have something to eat. So it was not a system of governmental handouts. It was not a system in which the government took things from the people and redistributed it to others. It was a system by which the people were required to leave a portion so that others could come behind them and, and, and in an honest way earn their bread. You see it in Ruth. You, know, you, read the, you read Ruth in the Old Testament, right? She's gleaning in the field of Boaz. She's poor. She's gleaning the barley harvest. She gleans the wheat harvest. This was the Mosaic system. It was a principle of hard work. But here's the kicker. A system that's based on hard work can easily be misapplied at the personal level and provide a basis to harden your hearts and just say, why don't you just get a job? Just go get a job. I'm not going to help you. Go glean a field somewhere. You close off your heart to the poor. Beyond that, Moses commanded that the people were not to charge interest on loans to their countrymen. The reason is so they wouldn't take advantage of them in their desperate situation. But if you're not allowed to charge interest, then the the temptation to sort of look away when someone's in need and and needs to borrow, right? I'm not going to lend to you. I can't charge you any interest. If I do that, I'm going to impoverish myself, so I just don't see the problem. I don't see it. Listen, these temptations are real. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15. God knows they're real. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 7. Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 7. There is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near." And if your eye is hostile toward your poor brother and you give him nothing, then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your hard work and in all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Do not harden your heart. Do not take the attitude that what I have, I got by my own hard work. And I'm not giving it to anybody else. Let them work for it too. He puts his finger right on the sore spot. Right on the sore spot. Listen. Listen. 
we have worked hard for what we have. And it is evil for others to, to not work and expect us to give to them our, the fruit of our own hard work. That is evil. The Bible routinely and roundly condemns slothfulness. Paul says over in 1 Thessalonians, I believe it's chapter 3 and verse 10, if he will not work, neither let them what? Eat. But see, it can just go so quickly, so quickly to harden in your heart. It's mine. I worked for it. I'm not giving it to them. Let them work for it like I've worked for it. And what that does is it just covers up a spirit of selfishness. Just a spirit of selfishness growing on in the inside of us. Jesus says, listen, give to him who asks, lend to him who needs. Relinquish your property. Let go. I'm not going to try to apply these verses any more deeply than Jesus has given to them right here. What I want to do is I want, I want to let you apply them yourself. Pray the power of the Spirit. Let, let the Spirit of God work out for you, or maybe I should say work out in you, how much and how far to apply these. Who am I to stand there and tell you? Let God convict you where you need to be convicted. But I do want to address something. I want to address a thought that that may be brewing in your heart and in your head. So you may be thinking, "I, I don't know if I can live like this. I don't even know if I want to. I'm not even sure I want to live like this. Because what Jesus is requiring of me is is impossible, it's impractical, it will trample all over my rights. It will make me a doormat. And you're right. You're absolutely correct. You cannot and you will not live according to these principles unless and until the gospel of grace has transformed your heart. Listen, Jesus is not substituting one set of rules with another. He's not giving you a law to to sit above you like a hammer and to crush you, to fill you with guilt. That's not what He's doing. You won't live like this. You can't live like this. You won't want to live like this unless and until the gospel of grace does its work. And it's not a one-time work. It's a every moment, every day, every week, every month, every year kind of work. It's a, it's a transformation of your life. What was impossible for you last year will be very possible for you this year as the gospel does its work. And don't worry, you'll never get to the finish line because verse 48 In chapter 5 says, here's the finish line. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you've got a long way to go. Don't worry. Okay, Plenty of room for improvement. 
And so do I. So here's how I want to close it out for you this morning. And this service has been really perfect because this service has done nothing but focus on the gospel. We have sung about the gospel. We have read the scriptures that that delineate the gospel. John put together the prayers of Paul. And if you were listening to those prayers, they were all about responding to the gospel and how it transforms us. And the only way that that we can deny our rights in a radical way that Jesus is talking about us, is when the gospel transforms us so that we're not living for this kingdom any longer, but we are living for the kingdom to come. So in a few minutes I have left, this is what I'd like to do. Some years ago, I took the time to write down the gospel in a kind of a bullet point form. I'm just going to read it, and I'm not going to make comments. I'm just going to read the bullet points to you. We'll have them up on the screens. Let it soak in. Let it saturate. Let the Spirit of God use it to transform the way you think. Let's put that first one up there. While you were in open defiance against your Creator... He, in His mercy, reached out to you and provided an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for your sin. That substitute, number two, that substitute was His own Son, who willingly died in your place, rising again in accordance with the eternal plan whereby God had graciously decided to save His own enemies. Point three, because you had no interest in Him, God sought you out and through His Holy Spirit created the faith you needed to embrace His gift for you. In effecting your salvation, God not only freed you from the penalty of your sin, but also from its enslavement, granting you access to the power necessary to say no to sin's enticements. When you fail to say no to sin and and reject God's will for you, He feels no wrath towards you, but floods you with His grace in order to maintain your justification. Conversely, when you reject sin's allure, God's love for you does not increase. His love for you did not end with your salvation, but extends to every circumstance and difficulty of life, whereby He subjugates them and forces them to do us good. Someday, someday, God will remove you from this life by either death or Christ's triumphant return, and your struggle against sin will cease. At that point, you will enjoy unhindered fellowship with your Creator, Redeemer, and friend. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is the grace of God in which you stand. It is the power to transform your soul. May you believe today. Let's pray.
Our Father, I thank You for the Gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. It is the Gospel that saves us, O Lord, and it is the Gospel that empowers us to to live free of our sin. Our Father, we have been challenged this morning the words of our Savior. He has put His finger into the very recesses of our hearts. He has shined the spotlight of His Word into the deep and dark places. And we have been wounded. And yet, our Father, we know in Your mercy and grace that You do not leave us in a wounded condition to bleed out, but You come tenderly to cauterize the wound, to flood us with Your grace, to transform us, that we might be all that You have predestined us to be from before the foundation of the world. We have all things in Jesus Christ, all riches, all of Your goodness. And yet, our Father, we have it now in, in principle. We will have it in complete possession someday when Christ returns for us or death takes us home. In between those events, O oh Lord, may You strengthen us in the inner man. May You cause us to reflect upon the, the love of Christ poured out for us. And may you transform our wretched hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.